Well, this morning, I wanted to kick off a uh, a two-part series, kind of a short series. Maybe it'll be longer. I don't think so. Dealing with um, our interaction as believers with the world around us. And, and I'll just throw out that that world around us is going to include believers and non-believers both. Um. Sometimes when we interact with people, it's enjoyable, it's encouraging, it's fruitful, and sometimes we find those interactions hard, and we might leave those feeling attacked. We may leave those feeling as if maybe we didn't say enough or do enough, and somewhat second-guessing ourselves. It's the nature of interacting with people. I remember... A long time ago, as we were just getting our church planted here, kind of kicking things off, a local pastor and I were having a conversation, and one of the things that he said, and this is true, he said that people are messy. And what he meant by that is our interactions are going to be messy, that there is the reality of the effects of sin and living in a sin-filled world all over all of us. Whether we're saved or not saved, there's going to be some conflict as a result of sinfulness. And so people are messy. They, they have baggage that they bring in. We, we have things that we hold on to uh, or that we're unwilling to, re, to let go of. Or for whatever reason, the Lord hasn't dealt with it yet. It's true. People are messy. And so our interactions will often be that way. And so when we are dealing with people, how do we interact with them? And, and how, do we, how do we come away with that? Or, or what does the Word of God tell us about those interactions? So that, as Jesus said to his disciples before he left, I'm telling you these things so that when this stuff happens, you're not stumbled by it. So when we encounter hardships, when we encounter uh, dealings with people, we have a proper and a biblical perspective about it. So this morning, I want to use... Uh, and actually next week as well, probably more next week than this morning, actually. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want to use this text um, as our baseline, sort of where we're going to draw our applications from. Now, and we're going to talk about some of the context and things here this morning, but uh, let's look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I want to read this chapter. Uh, it's... It's a little bit long, but bear with me uh, because I think it warrants some understanding, lays some foundation for us. So it says, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal to Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells there between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio. That's probably not how you say that, but there you go. And the sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fur, um, wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Verse 6, And when they had come to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error where he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come near to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And was told the king, told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, all that pertaineth to him, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they bear, they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed everyone to his house. And then David returned to his house to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of David today, who uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants. And one of the vain fellows, as one of the vain fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the Lord, people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than this, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the handmaids which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no ch child unto the day of her death. Now here in this, in this chapter, what we find is this interaction, David's desire to bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, into this tabernacle that he's made. Remember, he doesn't get to build the temple as he desired to. Solomon gets to do that, but he prepares everything. And he makes this ark, uh, the excuse me, tabernacle. And they want to bring the ark in. And they go about it the wrong way, and then they go about it the right way. But we have this interaction between David and between his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, where that interaction, though David is sincere and David is looking forward to and praising the Lord and doing something which is good and honorable unto the Lord, before the Lord, is ill-received and misunderstood. And sometimes we're going to interact with people and it's going to be the same. Now let's look at a few facts here, some things to help us understand what's going on a little bit, because Without some context and looking at what's actually happening, uh, we may miss some of the points that uh, we want to drive this morning. So number one, the ark is lost to the Philistines. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 
verses 12 and 13. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is actually where the ark is captured. But we have Eli, and he's the, the priest. And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they're kind of sleazy. And they go around and they take advantage of the position that they have. And God tells him, Eli, because you know what your sons are doing and you will not address it, you're going to be removed from this position. There's going to be a consequence. And in the first Samuel chapter 4, we find that the ark is taken out. They're fighting the Philistines, and they take the ark out because that's sort of the go-to when we're losing and we're not successful in battle. Go get the ark. So Hophni and Phinehas, they grab it. They take it out there. They lose the battle. Not only do they lose the battle, they lose the ark. And it's in that moment when Hophni and Phinehas are both dead, and Eli falls over backwards and dies. And remember that uh, one of his daughters-in-law was pregnant and delivers the child and calls him Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed because the ark of the Lord had been taken. That place where God would dwell with his people, there between the cherubims on the mercy seat. So that's where we're at. Here it is. This ark was lost. The Philistines take this spoil of war, and this for them is a big deal. I mean, we have captured the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel. We've got this thing. And so they take the Ark, and they put it into the temple of their god, Dagon, who's sort of the merman, right? He's this fish man. That's, that's where he is. And what happens is Dagon falls over. Ultimately, he breaks in pieces. And not only that, but the Philistines are struck with plagues. They have plagues of mice, they have plagues of tumors, and they decide in 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, we've got to get rid of this thing. This is a consequence for having this thing that we aren't supposed to have. And so they come up with this plan to send it back. They get this calf who this cow who's just had a calf, is nursing this calf. They hook her to this cart, they put the ark on it and they send it back. And that to them is confirmation that this cow would leave her calf to take this thing back to Israel where it was supposed to be. And so they find it. The men of Kirjath-Jerim find it, and it's there for 20 years. It's there for 20 years. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. David, here in our text, 20 years after all of those events, purposes to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He's built a tabernacle. He wants to bring it back. The ark is placed on an ox cart for transport, which, hey, seems reasonable. They put it on there, and as they come across this threshing floor, which we read about this morning, Uzzah puts his hand out to steady the ark so that it doesn't fall off the cart. Honorable mention, but the wrong thing to do. And God strikes him dead because of his error, it says, because of his sin. And we'll look at that here in just a moment. But you've got David and 30,000 chosen men of Israel out there celebrating, praising God, playing instruments, worshiping the Lord as they bring this back into Jerusalem 
not as God has prescribed, but as they decide to do themselves. And David's a little bummed out because they couldn't get the job done. And as we, we find here, they leave it there in Obed-Edom for three months. And some things must have happened in that three months because when they come back to take it again, they do it the right way. As it says here in verse 13, and as it was so, then when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, they offered offerings. So they're carrying it. This is what God has told them to do. So ultimately, they get it back into Jerusalem. David is celebrating. We had this interaction, and we're going to talk about that interaction more next week. I think this foundation needs to be laid of the context of what's happening here. So let's look in Exodus chapter 25 for just a moment. Exodus chapter 25. And let's read verses 8 through 22. We're just going to read some long passages this morning. That's just the way it's going to be. You know, sometimes when you think you're going to be short, you need filler. So you just read read longer. Oh, geez. I just got to keep up. Thanks. All right, here we go. Exodus 25, verse 8. Before we read anything, this is here is God, and he is directing the nation of Israel through Moses how they're going to get stuff moved around. I mean, they, they've got the tabernacle. They've got all of these, these instruments of worship and sacrifice that are made after the pattern that they're made after, uh, which God had commanded them, and, and he's giving them very specific instruction about how to get those around. Verse 8, And let them that make me a sanctuary that I may dwell... And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Verse 9, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So there's a very specific pattern. But what is the purpose? And let's not miss the purpose. Why does God want them to build their tabernacle? So that he may dwell among them. Remember that in Exodus 19, the God covenants with Israel to be their God and they will be his people as they keep their end of that covenant. As they walk in obedience to the commandments that God gives them, we call them the Ten Commandments. We're going to do what God says. We're going to do it His way. We're going to do, do it those things. And as a result, we'll be His people. We'll be His representatives, His ambassadors here on this earth. That was sort of the purpose of Israel, to be that example people. And we've talked about that in the past. So God says, listen, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with my people. So let's get together. You guys build a tent. And he goes on and he gives some instruction here. The first thing that he tells them to make is the ark. Verse 10, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shall thou overlay it, and thou shalt make it, upon a, crown, make it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put there in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be on the one side, and two rings on the other side. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. 
In other words, God says, listen, make it this way, right? We'll, we'll go back one slide here because I have a picture, right? Four rings, put some sticks in there. That's how you carry the ark. That those who are going to bear it, those who are going to carry it, this is how you carry it. This is how you move the ark around. Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I gave thee. So God tells them in this, you're going to put the, the Ten Commandments. And thou shalt make a mercy seat. Uh, simply mean, he's going to say a lid. We're going to put a lid on this thing. Now he describes that lid of pure gold. So this isn't something made out of wood and then covered with gold. This is pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I have given thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So in other words, God says, listen, put a lid on this thing. We're going to call it the mercy seat. And there, is, there are all kinds, all kinds of foreshadowings and looking forward to of Christ and his dealing with his people in the mercy seat alone. Now, we, we studied through that when we went through Jesus Unmasked in Sunday school. We looked at some of those things, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just consider that here is the Ten, ten Commandments. Here is the, the way that God commanded us to live, knowing that we can't live that way, that there is no law given that's going to establish anybody's righteousness. And that's what God has said in His Word. So God says, listen, between me and between my law is mercy, and that's how I'm going to deal with my people. And that's where I'm going to dwell with my people is in mercy. Now, he's told them to make this, and he goes on, and he, through the rest of a good chunk of Exodus, he tells them how to make this. He doesn't want the other items, the, the bronze labor, all the other items of worship. This is what the tabernacle looks like. This is how you build it. This is how you construct it. All of those things, and you can go read that all on your own. For our purposes this morning, we really just need to know about the ark because it becomes foundational understanding for what we're talking about this morning. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4. <clears throat> In Numbers chapter 4, God is telling the nation of Israel, he, he gives us some confirmation about how we're going to get all this stuff moved around. Now, remember that God wanted to come in. He wanted to establish this place in, in perpetuity, yet the nation of Israel wouldn't go into the promised land. They wouldn't operate by faith. They listened to the ten spies and not faithful Joshua and Caleb. So now they're going to have to wander. All that means to them is that we're going to have to pack all this stuff that God just told us to make for 40 years. 
And God said, listen, these are holy items. These are things that are instituted and built for worship and interaction with me. Therefore, the Levites are going to be the guys that carry it around. They're going to set it up and take it down. That's their job. And there's a specific family. They're sort of the pack animals of the Levites, the Kohathites. Okay? Actually, know a guy who is a descendant. He's a direct descendant. He's Jewish. He's a Christian. He's a Kohathite. And he can track his lineage. I mean, because that's what the Jews do. He's like, I'm good at carrying stuff. He teases about it. He's... <laughs> but that, he's the one who's like, yeah, my family, we're the pack mules of Israel. That's that's what he says. We carry the stuff. And he and he counts it, he looks back, he's like, it's sort of an honor that we get to be the ones that would carry these holy instruments of worship. He says, and specifically, our job was to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So we read here, let's begin in verse 4 of Numbers chapter 4. This shall be the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation about the most holy things. And when the camp sets forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering, the veil, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So everything gets covered. But I want you to notice that they're not carrying just the ark of the covenant. They're carrying the ark of the covenant with its coverings. Okay? When you go read through what it... <laughs> What the veil looks like between the holy place and the holy of this is heavy. This is not, you know, four guys packing this is going to work hard. That's just the way it's going to be. So, and we're not given any length of the staves. Maybe they're longer. Maybe more guys can carry it at a time. We don't know. It's not, as far as I can tell, we're not told how long they are. But they're probably at least four guys. And the good news is there's a lot of them so they can spell each other. Okay. But here they are. They're going to cover all this stuff. Um, he goes on to describe that. Yeah, turn with me to number seven now. We could read the rest of that. Number seven, verse nine. This is our first short passage this morning. But unto the sons of Kohath, he gave none. Right, so there's some description about the rest of the Levites, some of these other guys who are packing other things, like they might be packing the entire covering, the whole tabernacle covering, or the the, the sides that are... Uh, they all get carts. They, they get oxen and wagons to pack all their stuff in. But it says in verse 9, Under the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belongs unto them, was that they should bear upon their shoulders. They should bear it upon their shoulders. So we have a couple of things, right? Here's David. He's purposing to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel. And the first thing that he does is he puts it on an ox cart, which specifically is prohibited. Secondly, we have these guys, the sons of Abinadab, who are driving the Ark. They're not Kohathites. And they're not supposed to touch it. That's one thing. Numbers chapter 4 talks about that. Um, somewhere. Somewhere. It's in Numbers chapter 4, but they're not to touch it. You don't touch the holy things. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. 
they're not to touch it. Does anybody have that verse? I see verse 15. And when Aaron, we're just going to read it, trusting Marissa that she's right. And when Aaron and his sons had made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is set to go forward, after that, the sons of Kohath shall bear, come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath and the tabernacle of the congregation. So God specifically tells them, right, you carry it, you don't touch it, and it doesn't go on a wagon. They did all three wrong. David did all three wrong when he started. Now, there are some things that we can derive, some, some things that we can, some application that we need to make here. And I want to just begin with a couple of statements for just a moment. Okay. If culture or society normalizes what God has called sin, it does not cease to be sin. Doesn't matter what anybody says about it. God says, this is the way that it is. That's the way that it is. If expediency or efficiency seems to contradict the revealed truth of God, it remains true. God's word still remains true. And our commitment is to his word and not the efficiency, right? It's a lot easier to carry this ark and everything that's covering it on, an, on a wagon. It, it's easier. They could probably move faster. However, we do what God says. If I overlook or I'm willing to condone, give somebody a pass for sinfulness, or I overlook inappropriate actions and motives in others or in myself, they're still wrong. We are not the arbiters of truth, even though Mark Zuckerberg says that he is. We are not the arbiters of truth. God is. So what does that mean? It means that for you and I and for David, the foundation is the word of God. So here we are, we're talking about mingling with the masses, interacting with those who are, whether they're believers or non-believers, our interactions. First and foremost, we're going to stand upon the Word. There are going to be those in the church and outside of the church who may disagree. Turn with me to Numbers 23. Numbers 23, verse 19. While you're turning there for a bonus gold star, that means nothing. Does anybody know why the book of Numbers is called Numbers? Josh does. Counts how many people are in Israel, and not only that, by tribe and family, right? It's about numbers. Good job, Josh. Racking up those gold stars. Numbers 23, verse 19. Here, right, so Balaam is here. Balak has hired him to curse Israel. All that, that's where we're at. That's that's the context. Here's the thing. This is, um, I'm going to begin in verse 16. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go unto Balak and say thus. Because Balaam wants to go. They're promising him great riches, all kinds of things, right? We're going to reward you for cursing the people of God. He wants to go. He's interested in the money. And so he, he goes and he asks God. 
even though he knows that the answer is going to be no, but he asks anyway. He asks anyway. I shake my head. How often have we done something similar? Maybe not to the same degree as cursing the people of God, but yeah, I already know the answer. Why? How do I know the answer? Because I know what the Word of God says. Yet I would ask God because of my own desires and lust, whatever it may be. He goes and he asks God, and God gives him an answer. Verse 17, And we had come to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offerings, and the princes of Moab with him, and Balak said unto him, What has the Lord spoken? And he, and he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. Verse 19, and this is, this is what I want us to understand. This is the, we're deriving something from this interaction. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? So in this context, God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of these people leading up to Israel, all these good things. God's not going to lie to them. He's not going to change his mind about his interactions with them. He's going to fulfill what he has spoken. So the bad news from Balaam to Balak is that God said no. God said no. We can't curse them. God is not changing. He doesn't lie. His word is a foundation. So when God says, thou shalt or thou shall, he means it. There's an expectation. When God tells you and I as believers, be holy even as I am holy, there's some expectation there. That you and I as believers would live in such a way, and this is how we phrase it, that the profession of our faith and the life that we live would be consistent with one another. That we would be those well-rounded, clear witnesses, ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That people would look at us and understand. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah 55, verse 11. Through the prophet Isaiah, God makes a statement about his word, and he says this, So shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall, excuse me, it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And he's making this comparison to rain that comes down, that it, that it does its thing, that it waters those things that it needs to water, that it accomplishes the task that it needs to accomplish. So here is God's word, and it becomes, for you and I as believers, it becomes this, for lack of better terms, an instruction manual, something that we can put into practice. As we want to honor the Lord, Jesus would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or we're going to take what we know about God who he's revealed of himself, we're going to let the word inform our understanding and let it be the abundance of our hearts so that what comes out of us, the way that we would conduct ourselves, is consistent. So there would be an accurate representation. We're going to found ourselves upon the word of God, his truth, no matter what I think about it, no matter what society thinks about it, no matter what anybody else may think about it, no matter what this church or that church or, or this is what God's Word says, this is how we're going to operate. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll turn there, 1 Peter 2. Verses 24 through 25. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Uh, I just read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. 1 Peter, it's chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The 2 is right below there, so you know you can see how I was easily confused. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? We all know this. It's been a while. I've been doing okay. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. Right? It doesn't matter what anybody says about it. Man and his opinions are all going to fade away. They're like grass. It withers. It burns up. It doesn't last. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It's unchanging. It's truth because it is truth because God has declared it and it stands firm. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This is the word that as we live it out, as we have these good works that we read about in Matthew, I almost said first Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, that people would see them and they would glorify God. Just as the nation of Israel has this different way of conducting itself amongst all these other nations, they don't worship pagan gods, they don't fall into idolatry, they do fall into idolatry, we know this, we've studied through Hosea, right? But they worship one God. And they worship him in a specific way. They don't eat certain things. All these things are, are there to distinguish them as different from all the nations of the, uh, the rest of the nations in the world. And God would say to you and I, uh, he, he says, you who were not a people but are now a people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, who I have specifically called to bring forth worship and understanding of me to the world around you. That his word is what we're taking. That his word becomes the central theme about which we would share with people. When we talk about the gospel and we look at even the gospel in its simplest form as we read it in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. And you go and you look at the very simple tenets that Jesus Christ was born, that he died on a cross, and that he rose again. But how many times does it says, according to the word of God, according to what God has written, according to what was already said? There is one message from Genesis to Revelation, and it is God's redemptive purpose of mankind, his interaction with us. It is the good news of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Back to our passage this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
We've already talked about this, but let's look at it a little bit more specifically. Verses 6 through 9. So here's David. These people, they're playing their instruments. They've already loaded the ark on the cart. And when they came to this threshing floor, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Or you're not supposed to touch it, lest you die. They already knew they should be fully aware of what would have happened. When David is put off, when he was afraid, it says in verse 9, should have been no surprise. Now, he says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perazuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the God of the Lord come to me. Now, it wasn't that David was, was terrified and shaking in his boots that he's going to be struck down. No, he, there was a reverence and an understanding. Right? I, I fear the Lord. This is the proper and a good kind of fear. David's initial attempt, his initial attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem was not in accordance with the Word of God. As we already mentioned, he broke all three specific commands related to the transport of the ark. Don't touch it, only the Kohathites, and you have to carry it. Don't put it on a wagon. The failure of David to found himself, to establish himself completely and wholly upon what God had said, led to death. Which is an interesting thing for us to understand because Ultimately, what is the consequence of sin? From the very beginning, the consequence of sin has always been death. And in fact, as we read and we look at uh, this description of sin that we find in the New Testament, right, that we are not tempted by God himself. He, he's not tempting us to evil, but it says that we are, <laughs> the less of our flesh tempt us. And we yield to those, and when those conceive and they bring forth sin, that brings forth death. It's still the consequence. Now, you and I, in Jesus Christ, we are spared the eternal death that may be the, the final repercussion of our sinfulness. That is true. We've talked about that at great length. We are justified. We stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven, completely sure and stable in that relationship with him. But even if, but no matter what may happen, no matter how sincere we may be, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's sin, it's sin. Even if David was sincere, he was appropriately motivated. He was honoring the Lord. This is the place that God has said, let's make this tabernacle and we'll come in and we'll do this in the city of David. We'll, we'll bring it in here. You get it all together and I'll dwell with my people. It was appropriate and right. This is the intention. This was the purpose of God from the very beginning when he instituted a covenant with Israel that I will dwell with my people. But the method was wrong. The end doesn't justify the means, right? Even if it's expedient, even if it's more efficient, we still, it's still sin. So what do we do? We do what God's word says. If that takes more time, if it takes more effort, if it's slower. We're going to walk in obedience. 
right? When we studied through and we did we did this in uh, our, our midweek study a while back, we studied obedience and what it means. And the long and short is, is that in, in, in a Hebrew sense, obedience means to hear and do. That's literally what it means. Hearing and doing. David might have heard what God said. He might have been familiar with what God had spoken about how the tabernacle should be transported, but he didn't do it. His sincerity, and, I, and I'm going to potentially ascribe motives to David that were not his, but for sake of discussion, his sincerity was hoped to overcome the sin, the error, the wrongness of what he was doing. Doing the wrong thing with the right heart and motive is still the wrong thing. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read about an interaction with Samuel and Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul has been told com to completely annihilate the Amalekites, wipe them off the face of the earth. Not only the men, but the women and the children and the animals, everything. And there's reasons in the history behind all of the why. God is sovereign and righteous. Yet what we find Saul doing, and, and, and it's sincerely motivated, right? We're going to offer something to the Lord. The spoils of war, we'll give those up. That's not what God had told him to do. And so Samuel shows up to the camp, and he, he walks into the camp, and he asks the question, what means this bleeding in my ears? In other words, how come, Saul, how come I hear all these sheep and all these animals? You were supposed to have killed them all on the battlefield. Why are they here? And Saul explains, well, we're going to offer them to the Lord. This is, this is our offering. We're really going to please the Lord by giving. He's asked for sacrifices. We're going to give him all of these as sacrifice. And Samuel's response we find in verses 21 and 22. Unless I have the wrong passage again. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. God's instruction through Samuel, this prophet Samuel, to Israel, to Saul, is God would rather have obedience than the sacrifice. God would rather that we do what his word says, and we operate in accordance with it, that we don't condone sin, that we don't fall to the popular opinion, that we are willing to stand, despite the cost, wholly and completely founded upon truth that God has revealed in His Word and only in His Word, then that we would offer sacrifices and do things that we think He would be well pleased with. which if we're in no uncertain terms very clear about it, would be idolatry. We're worshiping a God after our own imaginations. 
I get to determine what God wants and desires in that scenario. And I don't get to worship the true and living God who has said, this is what I want. This is how you worship me. This is how you show me obedience and love and how we reciprocate and how we deal and represent him to the world around us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's next week. Teaser. You know, got to take it out of there. The foundation of Jesus Christ and God's truth is going to seem foolish to the world around us. It's not going to add up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Right? That, that's how the world looks at the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's foolishness. It's mythological. It's, it's old-fashioned. It doesn't add up. Whatever they may add to it, whatever they may think of it, it's good advice, but it isn't really God's word to us. That's how the world conceives of the Bible and the standards that we would endeavor to live by as a result of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's foolishness to them. But for you and I who are saved, who are born again, there should be a distinction and a difference. To us, it is the power of God. To us, it is a reformative thing. It is a sanctifying entity in our lives. It would be a standard that we would compare ourselves to, which is what we read about. Right? We look into the Word of God, and it's this mirror, and we look in, and we see our natural self, and we have to make a decision. How do I deal with this? What do I see here? How does this representation that I'm encountering now in the Word of God represent Jesus Christ and His gospel, His plan and purpose of redemption to the world over here? Or how does it represent His truth to the body of Christ over here? He continues on, verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And if we consider what... Well, we find recorded in the Gospels and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees or the religious leaders of his day, they looked for a sign. In fact, they specifically asked for a sign. And Jesus said, there will be no sign given you except for that of the prophet Jonah, who's in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, and then he was spit back out over here. He says, I will be three days in the tomb and resurrected. He compared himself to the temple, to this very presence of God here with you that will be torn down in three days and, and, and rebuilt, tore down and rebuilt in three days. Whew. 
And they asked the question, well, yeah, it took forever to build this thing. We had massive amounts of craftspeople out here constructing this. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And he says they didn't understand that he was talking about his body. The Jews required a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, it isn't wisdom per se as we would understand it in a biblical context. It's knowledge. They seek after knowledge. We want proof. Right? That, that's the Greeks' pursuit. Is we want It has to be logical. It has to be observable. It has to be testable. Right? I want to see, taste, touch, and feel that God exists, and then I'll believe in it. Well, we don't come to God by observation. We come to God by faith. Now, on the other side of that, on the receiving end of that faith, we have a confirmation that is undeniable where the Spirit itself bears witness with our, with our Spirit that we are the sons of God. There is a confirmation that takes place, but it has to be entered into by faith. By faith, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, we understand that God framed the world, that he made everything that exists today from nothing. We can't recreate it. We can't test it in a laboratory. We can't do any of those things. It's a miraculous event that God spoke into existence from nothing, not a pre-existing matter. It was somehow organized and put together. Science will never confirm that God spoke everything into existence. Nor can science ever confirm that you and I are born again. It's an impossibility. There's no mechanism to measure it or test it. Now, would there be evidences? Sure. But the only reason the evidences exist is because of what God's Word said is true. Would we find evidence that, that would refute any other method of bringing all of existence into existence besides God speaking it there? Sure, we'll find that evidence. But I'll tell you that that evidence, no level of apologetics is going to save anybody. As often and as fervently as we talk about it, and I think we should practice it, and we are in fact commanded to do it, and we're going to talk about that next week to some degree, that's not what saves them. Their interaction with the truth of God is what saves them. He continues on in verse 22, but we preach Christ crucified. Right? This is what they're looking for. They look for a sign and they look for wisdom. They look for something testable and observable. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. And when we in that in that one phrase, Christ crucified, we have the entirety of the gospel which in my estimation, my opinion, is probably best summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where God made Jesus Christ to be sin so that we could be made his righteousness. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who was in fact perfect, who was God incarnate, took on flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of mercy and truth. Here he is, he dies on a cross for the purpose of becoming sin and receiving the penalty and consequence of sin, that eternal consequence, so that we can be declared righteous. So that we might, so, so, so that God can be just and the justifier, as we read in the book of Romans. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. 
And under the Greeks, foolishness. I'll tell you that our interactions with people, with the masses that we're going to come in contact with, are going to fall into those two categories. Either they're going to be Jewish or they're going to be Greek. They're going to be something outside of Judaism. Every man, woman, and child ever born has fallen into one of those two categories. Jew or Gentile. And I realize maybe there's a little bit of a stretch there with Greek, but just bear with me for sake of what we're talking about, okay? We're going to interact with people, and it's either going to be a stumbling block, or it's going to seem to be foolishness. Now, not exclusively. There are going to be those that we interact with, and we share the gospel with them, that they actually respond to it. That they hear truth, that they come to faith in Jesus Christ, and now our interaction is very different. No longer is it the witness of what God has done for us. Now it is the witness of how God has called us to be. How God, by His Spirit, would empower us. Because, listen, I, as sincere as I may be, David, a man after God's own heart, extremely sincere and zealous to follow the Lord, still failed. So how do we live for Christ? How do we understand his grace in our day-to-day living of a Christian life? How do we endeavor to be better disciples, students, followers of, representatives of Jesus Christ? Because the foolishness of God is wiser, excuse me, verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is not only the power of God, the sign, the miraculous witness of what God has done for mankind, but he's also the wisdom of God. And perfectly remaining intact and not denying any characteristic or nature of himself, yet being able to extend mercy and remain righteous and just. How does that all balance? I could not tell you. I can understand, as a man can understand what God has revealed. Yet I know that it is 100% accurate. That God remains perfectly just. And the balancing mechanism in all of that is the death of Jesus Christ. Him being the propitiation, the substitution for you and I. The very practical wisdom of God extended to us in his word has no equal in all of the wisdom of mankind. There are a lot of other books that would purport to be holy or scripture or something like that, yet none of them address the things that the Bible and only the Bible addresses. And not only that, if they, if None of them address in any way, shape, or form how you and I, sinful mankind, can be given a righteousness that is equal to God's. Yet they would purport to be the word of some God and a method of how we should live to be righteous. They're contradictory upon the very face of it. 
that we can't be righteous, that we can't live this way, that we are going to fail, yet this is the mechanism, being perfect is the only way that we can be righteous. So therefore, we are separated from whatever God this is telling us we should be in relationship with. Only the Bible gives us the mechanism of how we can be righteous. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus gives us a parable. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these things, these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In these two examples, we have the man who builds his house on the sand, that which is easily molded and shaped and removed by the elements that it encounters. The rain comes, the wind blows, all of those moving that, that sand so that there is nothing for that house to set up on, and it falls. You and I, without the foundation of the Word of God, without the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, this proper and correct understanding of the Scripture will fall. And it doesn't matter if that's what popular opinion says. It doesn't matter if it's offensive. It doesn't matter if it is somehow slower or less efficient. Those of us who would understand what God's Word says and would endeavor to build our life on that rock, It's going to take faith, it's going to take time, it's going to take humility, and it's going to take effort to dig into the truth of God and to establish ourselves upon it. Just as it does in Jesus' illustration of actual construction. To get to the rock, it takes time, effort, takes takes something. There is a pursuit that happens. There is some labor, as it were, that goes into that process. And, and just to be clear, we're not talking about saving ourselves here. This is, or earning some favor with God. But what we're talking about is founding ourselves upon the word of Jesus Christ. That by faith, I would say that there is no mechanism, that there is no effort, that there is nothing that I can do. Like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? I thank Jesus Christ who has done that for me. That I would trust enough to lay myself on that firm foundation, the rock that is unmovable and unshakable. When the water comes, when the wind blows, when all of those things happen, and I'll just tell you that first and foremost, we, we should understand and we should, we should expect all kinds of storms and trials as a result of living for Christ. The first thing is we are mingling with the masses or we are dealing with people who are, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, when we stand upon the word of God, we're going to encounter pushback. 
the wind blowing, the rain falling. And if we're not founded on the word of God, great is going to be our fall. But if we are founded on the word of God, here's the thing. It's not an argument with me or with you. It's an argument with God on their part. We may have those uh, who would speak against standing firm, but in the end, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed. We reap the fruits of a life that is built upon an unshakable foundation of God's truth and upon the truth of God's word and his divine insight into the hearts of mankind. We can better prepare to reach those that we encounter. Because not only does God give insight into how we might be saved, he gives you and I insight into the hearts of the lost, which is extremely informative for us and, and our understanding and how we might share the gospel and how we might present it and how we might interpret the interactions that come back at us. Now listen, I should expect pushback because they don't like the light shining in the darkness. And that's okay. Don't take it personal. We're going to talk more about that next week. So I realize that here we have this, and we really didn't even get into dealing with people per se, but we've laid this foundation that even in our text in Samuel, that when they didn't build it upon the word of God, when they didn't found their witness, their method of interacting, when they didn't found themselves upon the word of God, there was death, there was hardship, there was consequences as a result. There was misrepresentation to those who were outside looking in. Yet, when we find David purposing to do it as God had commanded, that they would carry it. Now, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, that as we look at our text in, in Samuel, that David didn't have to offer sacrifices every six steps. I'm convinced that they didn't have to have the procession of music and all those things. I don't think that was required. I don't think that it was necessary. All they had to do was what God said. I do think that it is a proper response, that worship is a proper response to the truth of God's word and what he has done on our behalf, which is, I think, what David is doing. Here it is. He rejoices that, in fact, Obed-Edom is blessed in his entire household for three months simply by the ark being there. We want our nation, we want our people to be blessed as a result of God's presence and interaction. Therefore, we're going to do what God says, and we're going to move forward, and we're going to bring God into the capital so we might all reap the blessing. And I think that's David's perspective. And as a result of that understanding, as a result of the word of God coming to bear on the situation, there is a response and a proper response of worship. It wasn't appreciated by everyone, even those within his house. But it didn't change his perspective. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the opportunity uh, to be in your word. We praise you for the opportunity, uh, Lord, to make some application. And as we endeavor next week to uh, further our discussion about interacting with other people, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be rooted in your word, in an understanding of the hearts of mankind as you reveal it, in an understanding of your heart and your character.
as you have revealed it in your word. And God, by your grace, because only by your grace can we do so, we pray that you would help us to live a life that is acceptable to you. Lord, that you would help us to be those clear and present witnesses in the world around us. For your honor and for your glory, not for our sake. Lord, that you might be recognized and known. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for the truth of your word that comes to bear in our hearts. And as we hear it, Lord, and as we have opportunity to respond to it, Lord, I pray that it would be the offering of our lips now that you would hear and that you would receive. Lord, we praise you and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.